We're talking about religion and what it means to be truly religious people, uh, not just in an intellectual way, not just giving mental assent to what we believe or to just talk about things because that's what's really easy. And it has been really easy. Religious people in Jesus' day, religious people in James' day, Jesus' little brother in his day, and religious people today. It's really easy for religion to just be something that we, we talk about something that we practice occasionally. But it should be for us a whole lot more like marriage. I was thinking about that, that word or that idea of marriage, being married. You know, like you can be married. You can be not married. You can be used to married. You can be married for a short time. You can be married for a long time. But one thing you cannot be is a little married right? You, you can't be a little married. I, I'm afraid sometimes people want to be a little married, but you can't be a little married. You're either married or you're not, right? You're either committed or you're not. You're either in this relationship or you're not. You're either bound to this other person or you're not. And, and the same is true with being a Christian, Sometimes we think about Christianity like that. We look at some people like elders or ministers or deacons or some people that we know that I, I heard a comedian one time talking about people that are, I think he called it oversaved, you know, and he's like talking about, you know, people that are oversaved. He said something like, you know, if you say, I lost my car keys, and he says, well, what you really need is the keys to the kingdom, brother, you know, and like somebody like that. He said, those people are oversaved, you know, or super saved. We think about some people like that, and we're like, well, they're just always talking about Jesus. They're always talking about spiritual things. Those things are on the top of their mind. They're sort of super Christians. And we think, oh, I'm not, I'm not a Christian to that degree. I'm not that much of, you know, spiritual person. I try to be, but I'm just, we, we got to stop thinking about it that way. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're not. There are no degrees to which you're a Christian. We've got to say, either I'm going to commit my life to him and I'm committed to him. When we're baptized, we are baptized. Our whole self is baptized. There's, there's mythology and stories about maybe during the Crusades, soldiers that would get baptized and they would keep their sword out of the water as a way of saying, my body belongs to Jesus except for my sword. So this part of me, I'm going to, to keep and do with what I will, but the rest of me belongs to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. When we're baptized, we're, we're fully immersed into Jesus. We die to ourselves. The picture of Romans 6 that, that Paul gives of baptism is that it's this burial. You're, you die to self and you're buried with Jesus. You, in spite of what the Princess Bride says, you, you can't be mostly dead, right? You can't be mostly dead. You can't be a little dead. You can't be somewhat dead. You're either alive or you're dead. You're either this or you're that. You're either married or you're not. You're either in Jesus or you're not. We've got to stop thinking about it like, well, I'll give this a shot. Or I'll give Jesus a little bit of me. I'll, I'll, I'll devote part of myself, part of my mind, part of my heart, part of my life to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. This has to be a, a 
a death to self. Remember last week we talked about wisdom from above, and we talked about how wisdom from above is contrasted with wisdom, earthly wisdom that is unspiritual and demonic. Do you remember what James says about that, that wisdom that's earthly, that's unspiritual and demonic, that it, it starts with this selfish ambition, this bitter jealousy. This is what happens when we try to carry into the kingdom, into the church, the old self and say, yeah, you know, I, I like the idea of Jesus and I like the idea of being part of this and yeah, I want to be saved, but I want to bring my old self with me. I want to bring my old ambitions with me. I want to bring my old pursuits with me. I want to bring my old desires with me. I still want to, you know, pursue my own stuff and kind of have my own thing and kind of have my own desires and my own ambitions. It's a disaster. Here's what James says it looks like when, when we do that. He says, James chapter 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And, and again, he's just been talking about in the previous chapter about that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this having our own. And again, as I've been saying, James's word is relevant for his audience, but it's super, super relevant for, for us, isn't it? Because there's a, there's a degree to which it's a good thing that we think about individuals as having individual worth and value. That hasn't always been the case in the world, and that's not always the case right now in the world, that individual people have worth and value. But in our culture, we have taken individualism to a hyper degree. And we have taken this selfish ambition, self-desire, to say whatever you think and whatever you want and whatever you think about yourself and whatever you want for yourself and whatever you desire, whatever you want to pursue, however you want to identify yourself, however you want to live, it's all okay. Just do you. Live your life. Go grab whatever it is that you want. And when people come together into community, into a shared life where they're all pursuing their own interests, it's a disaster. He says, this is what causes fights and quarrels among you because you're all out for yourself. You desire and you want and you covet and you don't have and so you fight and you're murdering each other. I don't think he means literally, but maybe. But this is what we do, isn't it? When we're all out for ourselves. And this is not what the wisdom from above looks like. It's pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason. It, it, it looks out for each other. But this selfishness and self-desire and self-ambition, it becomes a, a war zone. We bring these things into the church. He says these are the, the desires that, that still haven't been put to death. They still haven't been mortified. This is the problem. The symptom is the fighting. And sometimes we can address that, like we can address, like don't fight with each other, just be nice to each other, be kind, like when my kids, you know, they want the same thing or they both want to play video games at the same time, you know, but the, the fighting with each other is just the symptom. James gets to the cause. What's the cause? What is the root of this? It's your desires. 
It's your passions. It's your coveting. It's that you've brought your selfish ambition and your pursuits, your worldly, unspiritual, demonic desires into this life. And you don't get to have both. Either we're going to commit ourselves to Jesus and say these things have to be put to death or we're going to continue to pursue those things to the end that they will take us to. Look at verse 2, end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. And what's the wrongly that you ask? To spend it on your own passions or to spend it on your passions. So not only are they being individualistic, they're being materialistic. And again, this, this applies to us so very much, doesn't it? He says, you, you don't have because you don't ask. You're, you're not relying on God. You're being self-reliant. You're, you're trying to, to do it yourself and get it yourself and fix it yourself and be it yourself. And you're relying on yourself and not on God. So part of the reason you don't have is because you don't rely on God. You don't humbly trust in him. You don't ask him for what you need. You think, I, can, I, I got this. I'm going to go get this. I'm going to go do this. I can arrange this. And so you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives to spend it on your own passions. And again, this is the root of the problem. This is the cause. It's the passions and the desires and the coveting. This is what I have to mortify. This is what I have to put to death. This is what you have to put to death. If you and I aren't getting along with each other, that's one thing, but that's the surface. We got to get to the heart. And at the heart of it is many times this. It's our passion, what I want. This is what I want. This is what I think I deserve. This is what whatever. And so we're all chasing our own stuff. And that's part of the problem. And part of the reason we don't have is because we don't ask and when we ask, we, we ask because, again, we're pursuing our own interests. What would be the right interests? Well, rather than spending it on our own passions, it would be to spend it on each other, to bless each other, to help each other, to, as Paul says in Philippians 2, consider others more significant than yourselves. Look out for others' interests, not just your own. That's what it's like to live in family. That's what it's like to live in community. That's what it's like to be one body. To say, I'm not, I am an individual. Yes, that's true, but I'm more than that. I'm a nose. I'm a finger. I'm a toe. I'm a hand. I'm an arm. I'm a part of a body. And I can't be self-seeking and be part of the body of Jesus. If I'm self-seeking and you're self-seeking and then we try to be one body, we'll tear each other apart. It doesn't work like that. That has to end at the water of baptism. That when I come up out of that water, not only am I united with Jesus, I'm united with each other. And that when I see that my passions and my desires and my coveting is causing strife and envy and jealousy and quarreling and fighting amongst us, I have to recognize that this is what needs to be put to death. Verse 4, you, whew, James doesn't mess around here. Listen, this, don't, I know you may have read this a thousand times, but I mean, sit with it. 
how strong words this, this is. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, being enemies with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, if we're not really sort of following James's logic here, it might seem like he sort of switched, switched subjects. And when we think about friendship, I was thinking, like when I was a kid, when you were a kid probably, and you said friend, that meant one thing, right? This is my friend. But now with Facebook, like I don't even know what that word means anymore, right? What does it mean to be somebody's friend? But in James's world, friendship even had another meaning that probably none of us have ever used. In, in James's world, the patron-client relationship was really important. The way that you, if you were an average person, the way that you really did much of anything, if your station in life was going to change, if, if your, your, your set of circumstances were going to change in any way, if you were going to kind of be promoted or get a different job or kind of move up the social ladder, it wasn't because you were going to be able to do it on your own. You couldn't do it on your own. So you had, to, you had to arrange the right kinds of relationships. We say things like it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? And even more so in James' world. Like in that world, who you knew was everything. And so you would try to, to get in good with a patron, and the patron would bless you with some sort of gift and that gift would help you to do what you needed to do, but you were committed to that patron now. You had to be faithful and loyal to that patron. And that patron-client relationship, some scholars kind of describe it in our terms about the only thing we can sort of relate it to is the Godfather, which then you'd have to admit that you watch the Godfather, but uh, th that idea of, of the Godfather, Don Corleone, you know, and going into him and asking him for a favor to do this thing for you. Now, in that world, it wasn't illegal. It wasn't like they were engaging in anything illegal, but you wanted to make sure that you had the right patron, the right godfather on your side because he was going to protect you and provide for you and he was going to bless your life and you were going to be loyal and faithful to that patron. And that relationship between the patron and the client was often described as friendship. And so you wanted to make sure that you had the right sorts of friends. Because if you had the right sorts of friends, if you had the right friend, specifically singular, if you had the right friend, your friend, your patron could provide for you and protect you and you would give him your loyalty and allegiance. But do you see what James is saying? You have a friend. <laughs> you have a patron. You have a benefactor. And who is that supposed to be? God. God is your friend. God is your patron. God is your benefactor. And you are so consumed by your selfish desires, by your passions, by your covetousness, that you are going to the world and having the world be your patron, have the world be your friend. You're making friends with the world, thinking that the world is going to provide for you and protect you and bless you and help you to move up. And you're so concerned with your status or your money or your stuff that you're chasing, that you're coveting, that you're passionate about that you're trusting in the world to provide for you and protect you. And James says, that is adultery. Adultery? 
That's really strong, James. But think about it. Think about it in terms of a marriage relationship. Imagine if Holly said to me, Wes, listen, I love you. I'm glad you're my husband. But I really want to move into this other house because it's next door to this other guy. And listen, he's really strong and he makes a lot of money. And I think he'll provide for me really well. And so I really want him to provide for me and protect me. But I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm glad you're my husband. I just want to live really close to him so that I can trust him to provide for me and protect me. I don't think I'd be okay with that. What do you think? Do you think a husband would be okay with that? To say, I'm going to trust some other man to be my protector and provider. And James says, this is what you're doing. You're cozying up to the world. You're giving your loyalty and your allegiance to the powers of the world. You're looking to the world to provide for you and protect you because you, you still are so covetous. You still have this selfish ambition. You still have these desires that are unspiritual and are demonic and are earthly and you're asking the world to protect you. You don't have because you don't ask and when you ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Do you see what James is saying? And do you see how we do the same thing? Do you see how we do the same thing? How we trust in the powers that be? How we snuggle up to the world to say, oh, we got we to gotta have the right this or the right that. If we don't have the right this or the right that. If we don't have the right guy in the White House. If we don't have the right judges on the Supreme Court. If we don't have the right people in Congress. You know, everything's going to fall apart. Listen, listen, I, I'm not saying there's not practical reasons to want this or that. But we have to be so very careful here, church. The church does not depend on the strength and the power of the world. This, the church does not depend on the strength and the power of the world. We have a friend. We have a benefactor. We have a patron. We have a deliverer. We have a savior. We have the one in whom we trust, and his name is Jesus. And for us to say, if we don't have this, whatever this is, then everything is lost. Think about it in terms of a marriage. I gotta, I gotta be close to this person. This person's gonna provide for me and protect me. You have a provider. You have a protector. You have a patron. You have a friend. And James says you don't get to have it both ways. You don't get to say, well, you know, I mean, yes and no. I mean, yeah, I wanna trust in the world to provide for me and protect me, but I also trust in God to provide. He says, no, to make yourself a friend of the world is enmity with God. You're putting yourself at odds with God. You're, you're supposed to be the alternative kingdom. You're supposed to be the contrast to the world. They're supposed to look at you and see something different. They're supposed to look at you and not see the same passions and desires and selfishness and selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and fighting and quarreling and murdering. They're supposed to look at you and see something different. And for you to partner up with the world and to say the world's going to protect me and provide for me, that puts you in enmity with God. It's adultery to him. We have to be wholeheartedly committed to the Lord to say he's my patron, he's my benefactor, he's the one in whom I trust to provide and protect. 
Yeah, that doesn't mean we don't have jobs and everything else, but it means we're, we're not distraught. We're not distraught. We're not worried. We're not snuggling up to and cozying up with the world thinking, if I get close to them, if I give them my allegiance, if I give them my loyalty, if I give them my faith and trust, then they'll provide for me and protect me. That is when we get into a very dangerous area. Verse 5, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy of, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God has given us his spirit as the down payment, as the seal that we belong to him. It's the ring on our finger, isn't it? I mean, again, imagine a husband or a wife that says, yes, you know, yeah, I've got the ring that says I belong to this one over here, but I really like what this one can provide. I really like what that one can do for me. You, you don't get to have it that way. God gave his spirit to you. And when he gives his spirit to you, but yet you look to the world to be your patron. You look to the world to be your friend. You look to the world to be your savior, your deliverer. You look to the powers out there to be your savior and deliverer instead of looking to the power that's up there and the power that through the spirit is in you. Of course he's jealous. Of course he yearns jealously for you. He wants you, all of you. He wants your devotion. He wants your heart. He doesn't want you to say, well, you know, I'll give Christianity a try. I'll, I'll see what, you know, that has to offer. I'll try to be a good person and, you know, devote a little of my time and money and energy to the Lord. That's not Christianity. That's not religion. That's not faith. It's baptism. It's whole self. It's wholehearted. Total devotion to him and trust and trust that he is our provider james says to them you don't have because you don't ask you're, you're asking the world and really when we're asking the world who are we really asking we're asking ourselves aren't we we're trusting in ourselves. We're saying, no, no, it's okay, Lord. I got this. I can, you know, I can make some good arrangements. I can make some good deals. I can kind of line stuff up. I got this. And we're being not only self-seeking, but self-reliant. God doesn't want you to be self-reliant. He wants you to be totally dependent on him. And he yearns for you. He wants you to ask. He wants you to humbly submit and surrender yourself to him. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. It's interesting that in the, the Greco-Roman world, that, that word grace, charis, it's where we get the word charity, that word grace was what a patron gave to a client or a benefactor to the one that, that he would he would bless to his friend. A patron would give to his client charis, grace, gifts. And what does James say about our patron, our friend, our benefactor? He gives more grace. He gives more grace. He's, he's where you will find the gifts. 
and the blessings and the abundance. He will take care of you, but as it is, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. He says, you're relying on yourself and you're self-seeking. If you would just be dependent on him, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Whatever it is that we think the world can offer us, whatever it is that we think, well, this relationship, if we could just partner up with this person or this party or this group or this thing or this power or this whatever, if we could just kind of make friends with them, you know, then they could give us this. I promise you, God gives more. God gives more than anything anybody else can offer. And when we go to the world to try to arrange our own relationships, and we say, it's not what you know, it's, it's who you know, and I know all the right people, then we're committing adultery against God. We're positioning ourselves as God's enemies rather than depending on him to give us more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, this is the issue, isn't it? It's pride. Even, even when it looks like idolatry, even when it looks like adultery and, and lining ourselves up with other powers, those kinds of things, all at the heart of it is humanistic pride that we're trusting in our own self to make the right deals, to arrange the right things, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to rely on ourselves, to depend on ourselves. And not only are we forfeiting, because that would be one thing. It'd be one thing to just say, well, if you do that, you forfeit the grace and the blessings of God. And that's true, but it's worse than that. It says God opposes the proud. You pit yourself against God. In our pride and our self-seeking and our self-reliance, we pit ourselves against God. Not only are we committing adultery against him, but we're becoming his enemy and God opposes the proud. But, but, here's the good part, but gives grace to the humble. And this is every, this is the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? This is the Sermon on the Mount. These are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, spirit blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness blessed are those who mourn blessed are those who weep blessed are the meek these are the people that receive the earth these are the people that receive the kingdom these are the people that will see the face of god is the people that say i can't do it I can't do it. I don't know the right people. I can't make the right relationships. I can't rely on myself. I can't deliver myself. I can't save myself. I, I don't trust in me or my friends or my neighbors or the powers that be. I trust in you. Fill me up. Mend me. Heal me. Save me. Restore me. These are the people who get to see God. These are the people who get to experience the grace of God. These are the people to whom God gives his grace. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Become his friend. Become his friend. Friendship with, with God 
I mean, if you're just going to do like a cost analysis, cost-benefit analysis, right? The, the cost-benefit analysis of friendship with God is way better than any other friendship. It's way better than any other relationship. God wants to give you everything. The meek will inherit the earth. God wants to give you everything. But you have to, in humility, trust him, submit to him, surrender to him, to say, I'm not going to get what God wants to give me by going about it in the world's sort of ways, chasing the things that the world chases. Well, I got to have this car, and I got to have this house, and I got to have this raise, and I got to have... It's not that much different than the people of James's day and the things they were pursuing and chasing and the way they thought that they could accumulate them and gather them. They were chasing the same sorts of things, and James was giving them the same sorts of warnings. This is adultery. This is becoming enemies of God. Submit to him. Submit to him. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? That if you're on God's team, if God is your friend, if, you, if God is your patron, if God is your benefactor, if you have friendship with God, then the devil and the demons flee. If you resist the devil and his lies, he flees from you. But the more we give in to him, the more we listen to him, the more we submit to him, the more we trust him and his lies and the people he controls, and the more we surrender and submit to that, the more control he has over us. And every time we, we give in a little bit here and a little bit there, and the more we pursue this and pursue that and feed our ego and feed our passions and our desires, and the more we allow ourselves to be filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, the more he has a hold on us. But James says, resist him and he will flee from you. He has nothing on you. He has no claim to you. If you submit yourself to God and resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's the key, isn't it? double-minded. And that's what hits me right between the eyes. I don't know about you, but I, again, I, I'm just preaching to me. If this applies to you, then grab hold of it with both hands. You double-minded. See, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's never that we would just outright tell God, God, I don't want your help. I, I don't need you. I don't depend on you. We don't do that. We try to have it both ways. That's what we do. We try to hedge our bets. We try to say, well, yes, yeah, I, I mean, I, I want to go to heaven and I want God's blessing. So, you know, I'm going to kind of devote myself to him. But I also want all this other stuff. And I also want this other life. And I also want to protect this. And I want to pursue that. I want to have this. So I'm going to kind of do this over here and that over there. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to be double-minded. That's adultery. That's opposing God. And God opposes that sort of pride that thinks you can pursue life that way that thinks, that believes the lies of Satan, that that's the life. That's not the life. Whatever it is that they put on the commercial that says, ah, that's the life. It's not. It's a lie. This is the life. 
The poor in spirit, they have the life. The meek, they have the life. The persecuted, they have the life. Those who mourn and weep and hunger and thirst for righteousness, they have the life. And James says, if you want to have the life, if you want to have the grace of God, if you want God's friendship, then draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Like, I mean, this isn't, this isn't fun preaching, is it? I, this is, I, just, I came on a Wednesday night to hear this, right? Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. But this is the way we're actually truly happy. Because if we're not paying attention, we just coast through life and we just kind of do whatever and we're just kind of jovial and just kind of going through the motions and doing what everybody else is doing. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. It's like you would be happier if you just wake up and you realize that it's all just smoke and mirrors. You'd be happier if you just realized that all of the promises that the powers that be are offering to you, the utopia that you think that that friendship is going to give you, it's a lie. Whatever it is, whoever it is that's promising you that life and that utopia, they're lying to you. And you'd be happier if you woke up and you were wretched and you mourn and you weep and you let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom and you humble yourselves before the Lord. Because when you do that, he will exalt you. He will exalt you. You keep looking to all of these other relationships and all of these other pursuits to exalt you. It's what we do, isn't it? trying to work our way up the ladder, try to be exalted by someone, applauded by someone, lifted up by someone, move up the ladder somewhere, somehow, have a little bit more than the next guy. And the way to pursue exaltation is through humiliation. It's through humbling ourselves before the Lord. And then he exalts us. When we totally, finally, completely die to self and totally surrender and say, I'm nothing. I don't have anything. I'm not anything. I'm a wretch. I'm miserable. I'm nothing. I'm dead. He says, finally, finally, now I can make you something. Now I can exalt you. Now I can lift you up. Now I can give you everything. Those are the people that actually have the blessed life according to Jesus. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James says, even, even the law tells you, this is from Leviticus chapter 19, even the law says, don't go around slandering or bad-mouthing or speaking evil against one another. He says, when you, when you do that, when you go around speaking evil against one another, and you say, I'm better than them because they did this, and don't you know what kind of person this is, and you go around talking about other people, you're actually speaking against and judging the law. You're actually saying, I know better than God, because God says, don't do this, but actually, you need to know just how horrible this guy is. And he says, when you're trying to convict them of being bad, what you're doing is you're actually speaking against the law and judging the law. You say, I wasn't judging the law. I was just judging that guy. But the law said, don't, stop, 
Don't do that. And all of this goes back to our pride, isn't it? He says, who, who are you to judge your neighbor? And that's the question I have to ask myself. That's the question you have to ask yourself. That's the question his audience had to ask themselves. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Who, are you, who do you think you are to say, I know better than Jesus? I know better than the law of Moses. I know better than God. I know God says don't do this. I know God says to turn the other cheek. I know God says to love my neighbor. I know God says not to talk bad about people. I know that, I know that, but I know better than any of them because I'm going to talk bad about them and I'm going to judge these people. No, no, no. Who do you think you are? When we're living this kind of proud and self-reliant and self-seeking lifestyle, we don't get to experience life and grace, and exaltation, and friendship with God. God is friends with those of humble and wholehearted devotion. That's, that's who we should want to know and to be known by. But God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, we come humbly before you. And Father, whatever we lack in humility, we pray that you'll give it to us. And whatever we retain of selfish ambition and conceit and pride, evil desires that are earthly and unspiritual and demonic, we pray, Father, that you put those things to death in us. Father, help us to rend our hearts, to humble ourselves before you, to throw yourselves at, our, at your mercy, and to know, Father, that you will meet us there on our knees, and you will lift us up and exalt us and give us grace and blessings, that you will give us life indeed. Father, help us to put our trust in you. Father, help us to stop believing the lies of Satan and the world. Help us, Father, to stop seeking to be friends with the world. Help us, Father, to seek your friendship and to know that you are our patron, our benefactor, our savior, our protector, and our provider. Help us, Father, to humbly and wholeheartedly trust in you. And Father, thank you for Jesus who makes that possible. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.